This is Decoding Security, a podcast from Microsoft Australia about how to protect your business from the ever-changing threat of cybercrime. On the show, you'll hear from leaders in cybersecurity as well as Microsoft experts as we break down strategies to help keep your business secure. I'm your host, Mark Anderson, and I'm the Chief Security Officer here at Microsoft Australia. In today's episode, we have a panel of three cybersecurity experts to discuss the topic of risk monitoring. From Microsoft, you'll hear from Andy Huron and Reshmi Harry Haran, and they're joined by Paul O'Rourke. Paul is the Global Cyber Leader and Managing Director at Boston Consulting Group. Today, you'll hear about the importance of risk monitoring, some of the challenges to implementing, and we'll share a few tips to help you get started. Now it's over to Andy to start the conversation. Today, we're going to be discussing the risk monitoring and reporting phase of a risk management program. It's importance in the process, some of the challenges and indeed changes affecting approaches, and hopefully sharing some good advice and things to think about when implementing and operationalizing. My name is Andy Huron, and I'm a cybersecurity solution specialist with Microsoft. A lot of my personal experience has been in helping organizations with their cybersecurity operations and cyber architectural functions. So I am very, very grateful to have two risk experts joining me today for the conversation. First, I'd like to introduce Rajmi. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Sure, Andy, thank you. Myself, Rajmi Hariharan. I'm a compliance specialist here at Microsoft based out of Canberra. My background is in the governance, risk and compliance space. And here at Microsoft, I help our clients uptake Microsoft's compliance solutions. And next, we are very, very fortunate to have with us Paul O'Rourke, the Global Cyber Leader and Managing Director for Boston Consulting Group. Paul, very sincere welcome. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, Andy, and really welcome to be here today. So a bit about myself, Paul O'Rourke. I'm actually based in Melbourne. I lead BCG's Global Cyber Risk Practice. And really in that role, I'm very focused on the whole dialogue with primarily C-suites and boards and really helping them understand, manage and govern, which is increasingly a C-suite and board issue, but also a very complex issue with them. So really happy to be here today and share some perspectives. Fantastic. Great to have you here. I'm really looking forward to this discussion. Without further ado, let's get started. Rajmi, over to you for the first question. Thanks, Andy. In the previous webinar sessions, we have covered the importance of a risk-based approach to cybersecurity, whether it be assessing and identifying risk to prioritizing treatment options. In your experience, how important is risk monitoring and reporting function within an effective risk management framework? And what are some of the challenges affecting implementation? Really good question to start with, Rajmi. And maybe what I'll do is I'll backtrack a bit to what is the problem statement and really what we've been struggling with as a market view. I've been in cyber for a bit over 20 years. And interestingly, I don't come from a cyber background and heritage. In that sense, I don't come from a technical background. I've come from an economic modeling background and a risk perspective. And I'll come back to that because I think it's it's a perspective that actually is where the market has shifted to in both from a actuarial economic modeling and also from a strong risk perspective. But as I reflect on the last 20 years in cyber, and I often say this to boards and C-suites, is one of the biggest problems with the cyber industry is the cyber industry. And that is we probably haven't given the right due focus and the right what I call translation for the boards and C-suite. And if we look at the threat landscape and really what's happened in the market over the last 10 years and particularly five years, and more importantly, post-COVID, we've seen a fundamental shift towards 
this being an enterprise risk. And to your point, Rejmi, this is a risk issue. When I present to boards and C-suites for context, the first slide says this has nothing to do with security. Obviously, you get the question from a chair or one of the executives saying, why are you here? And what I talk to them about, it's not a security issue, it's a risk issue. And what I mean by that is security is the answer, risk is the problem. That's a comparative view I want to give about the problem with the industry for the last 20 years. We're focused more and more on cybersecurity, on the same solutions, but we haven't addressed the underlying issue, which is risk. Any organization that's going through a transformation view, and it's basically every one of the large organizations, if not all organizations globally, have to accept cyber as a risk. Now, that's a big change. And five years ago, a lot of the dialogue was about cyber programs, cyber investment from a security optic. And again, I bring it back to a view that cyber and security is an answer. Risk is a problem. And this is where I think we're seeing a real change in the market. And there's a few drivers around that. We're seeing a regulatory drive and the regulators getting focused on the C-suite board and the security function, getting much more focused on cyber risk. But it also brings a threat view into this as well. And that is the threats are coming from all directions. You can't stop everything. And fundamentally, organizations have to take a pragmatic risk view. And we'll talk about this a bit more in the session. And what we talk about here is crown jewels, is from a risk perspective, what are those risks or threats that fundamentally have the most economic impact, reputational impact, regulatory impact, and executive impact on your organizations? And fundamentally, you need to overprotect those assets and start to understand from a risk view, I'm not going to stop everything. I can't stop everything. But for those areas, that's where I'm really going to focus. That's a very concise view on bringing the cyber risk under the remit of enterprise risk management itself. Clearly, you're not new to managing cyber risk. So then what's your recommended approach to bringing the cybersecurity risk under the broader enterprise risk management framework? What could be the tips that you can provide to the audience there? It's an interesting perspective because I touched on the cyber industry before is very focused on security solutions. If I look at the other perspective, the risk and the enterprise risk management approach for a lot of organizations don't understand cyber. We've got this dual problem of security not understanding how to talk in risk language and the risk function not understanding the cyber issue. And then we overlay this with executives and boards needing to try and understand what the security function is reporting up in terms of likelihood and impact, and most importantly, triage requirements. The risk organization really starting to understand from an enterprise risk management perspective, what is cyber? What do I do around cyber? What's the reality of the risk? Where's the risk coming from? And how does it fit in? I mentioned before that we have to approach this from a risk angle. And one thing I often say to executives and boards is cyber is just another risk. And when you start to approach it from that perspective, and I'm not in any way denigrating the importance of the risk, what I'm probably doing here more is elevating the view that it is a risk. And if we want to get it properly governed and managed and the right oversight, particularly under the context of your comment, Reshmi, about the enterprise risk management framework, if we see it as just another risk, then we use exactly the same approach as we do with market risk, credit risk, environmental risk, and IT risk and other emerging risk categories. And by that, I mean, we use the same frameworks, we use the same scenario approach, we use the same shells, sorry, black swan type modeling. And then we get very focused on really understanding from a risk perspective, the translation of cyber into risk metrics and dialogue. Once we do that, the engagement with the board and C-suite is much more impactful. And I think that's the one thing that the market needs more than anything. And I used the word translation before. I think that is the issue, is taking a security vulnerability context, putting it in risk language, 
and fundamentally reporting it in language that the board and executives and regulators and others can really understand and more importantly, govern and manage appropriately. Agreed. That's a very valuable insight there, Paul. I 100% agree with that because it's essentially not reinventing the wheel, but trying to fit cyber into the existing mechanisms that organizations already have. Great insight there. I don't think the market's there yet. I don't think we do a great job of this. There's a skill shortage in the market around cyber. There's also a capability shortage here around how we do that translation. And I think if we're to have the real impact in the market, that this is the area that we need to focus on and really help the cyber industry and the security industry really elevate both the importance, but I think more importantly, the impact that we can have at the executives and board around getting the right funding, getting the right focus and getting the right oversight over cyber. Yep, agreed. Now I'm keen to understand the evolving risk landscape, especially with the work from home scenario. I'm sure many of the inherent risk levels would have changed, right? So in your opinion, what are the new normal key risk indicators that we should be thinking about monitoring? Really good question. I just start by saying, I don't even know what the new normal is. I think the new normal is evolving so much that we're all struggling with what is new normal in cyber. We're entering a different, I hesitate to use the word paradigm, but I think we almost are in cyber. And I think across three perspectives here in terms of, I'll call it a post-COVID environment. We have the work from home perspective, we have the broader people perspective, and then we have the supply chain perspective. And all three are driving a very complex issue around how we actually approach cyber differently. Let me take the first one around work from home. Obviously, a distributed workforce view has changed the threat landscape. And underlying these three mega trends around work from home, people and supply chain is the industrialized crime element, just getting much smarter going, I'm going to go after these three elements and attack these more vigorously. And so we've seen the threat landscape change. Everything simply from working from home, distributed workforce, less secure home networks and the ability to penetrate the networks there. That opens up a whole risk perspective that a lot of organisations have struggled with. COVID fundamentally changed a view where organisations had to move at pace to distributed workforce. A lot of them weren't ready for it. A lot of the risk accepted, a lot of policies and standards that they normally wouldn't have, but they were forced to, and that has definitely opened up threats. The second mega trend here is around the people. Just looking at stats over the last 12 months, 73% of all major attacks were through the people element. If we look at from an inverse perspective, most of the spend today in organisations on cyber goes to technology, and technology is fundamental. But we also have to gear some of that or more of that money towards addressing the people element. And technology can help in that area. We probably just haven't allocated enough capital, resources and management time around the people element. And if 70 plus percent of the attacks are going at the people side, we need to respond appropriately to that mega trend. And the last mega trend is supply chain. And I think 2021 is the year of supply chain attacks. This is where we're seeing fundamental shift in terms of the attackers getting very smart. Everyone in the cyber industry knows it's a weakest link discussion. All I have to do is get in. I'm going to go after the work from home. I'm going to go after the people element. I'm going to send them a phishing, a phishing, whatever sort of attack. More importantly, I'll go through the supply chain and actually get through that element. And this is an area that is the most unsolved issue in terms of the industry. It absolutely represents the biggest cyber risk and the one that by far and away is the most complex. And the reason is everything else in cyber we can control. We can control with assessment. We can control with governance, we can control with investment, we can control with management focus. The supply chain is much more complex. A lot of organisations don't even know their whole supply chain. Even once you know the inventory view and very basic, but very 
obvious is you don't have management control, let alone governance control or oversight control over the supply chain. A lot of organisations are focused on a bespoke once a year type review. In the cyber world and the threat landscape, it's meaningless almost. You could argue that it's not impacting the whole threats here and the governance. And so this is the three mega trends I think represent the next iteration of how we evolve our risk management approach. And we really need to think about a sustained view of work from home or distributed workforce, a much greater focus on risk management around people, and then stretching our whole focus, our governance, our investment model, and our really cooperative view of how we manage integrated supply chains. The next two years, this is where the focus will be on cyber risk management. I'm sure we at Microsoft would have some capabilities in addressing the new risks, and I'm sure Andy would definitely love to add to that around zero trust and protecting the home office there. Stepping back to the change that COVID and shifting to working from home presented to all of us, both as Microsoft and, and for me, helping a lot of customers in that, that initial almost you know, rush arms race to be able to support working from home scenarios. We all learned a lot from those processes. And I think from a risk perspective, a lot of risks were taken more willingly in that rush. So a lot of my time was spent helping customers make security decisions, risk-based decisions, or accepting risk in order to get their businesses and keep their businesses moving during that time. And then a lot of remedial work taking place after that. For us at Microsoft, the term zero trust, I think that's a key philosophy for everything that we're doing from a solutioning perspective to really enable people to uh, really function within the context of the modern digital world. The principles of assuming that you are going to be breached or you are breached already becomes a really, really important factor in deciding how you approach both the technology decisions as well as the process decisions that you're putting in place. And if I can just add to that as well, Andy, obviously the cloud-first strategy, the native cloud, is becoming a fundamental focus. In a pre-COVID world, cloud is accelerating. We've seen Lucene explosion post-COVID. Obviously, that megatrend won't change. And I think this is one of the fundamental answers around cyber risk. Countless times I've had from boards and C-suites is, is the cloud secure relative to our internal networks? And I always answer almost intuitively, the cloud will be far more secure than what you have today internally. What we've seen post-COVID is a much greater reliance on cloud solutions. This actually helps to solve from a technology viewpoint, the exposures that we're facing in the market today. Absolutely. The other thing that I wanted to ask Paul is following on from the last discussion, you mentioned that risks are continuously evolving and we are still not certain what the new normal looks like. So that brings me to my next question. We know that risk treatment often results in mitigation options, both technical and non-technical. And many a time organizations follow vulnerability assessments or penetration testing, internal and external audits to measure the control efficiencies. But those are just point in time exercises and it just gives a snapshot in time. With, especially with the United States under the Federal Information Security Management Act, there's a greater push for continuous control monitoring, especially at the federal level. Have you seen a similar desire here in Australia to adopt continuous monitoring? Yeah, it is a trend in the market. It's probably driven more out of North America at the moment. We are seeing some of the largest organisations in Australia adopt it now, but probably from a slightly different viewpoint. And there's probably two aspects to this. I touched on before that we haven't done a great job as a cyber industry over the last 20 years in terms of managing risk. Yeah, one of the problems and drawing a comparative view to other risk categories, credit risk, market risk, etc., is they support qualitative assessment with quantitative modeling. The one thing that we've done in cyber up until probably the last 18 months is we've only done qualitative assessment. And that was, we've looked at NIST, we've looked at penetration testing, we've looked at control efficacy and, and other 
aspects in terms of how we measure and how we attest to both maturity and improvement. That doesn't work in other risk categories. That's only part of the solution. So I think the biggest evolution we're seeing in the market today is supporting qualitative assessment, advanced quantitative modelling. I made the reference up front that you know, I come from an economic modelling background. That's really where the market's going now around cyber, is to say what we do today around continuous pen testing, real-time control, monitoring is absolutely part of the answer. But it needs to be supported with quantitative modelling. And the thing that quantitative modelling will give you in cyber, which is the one thing, and I emphasise the one thing that boards and C-suites want to know more than anything, it will tell you in dollar terms, if I have a breach, what will it cost me? And so quite simply to trust, and I've been to countless executive and board sessions where we talk about this is the likelihood of a breach. In the past, we couldn't tell them the dollars. And they're saying, well, you're asking for 100 million or 150 million in investments over the next three years. Help me understand what risk am I facing? It's much more impactful if we can go to the executive and say, we've looked at the qualitative assessment. We think that the reality of a risk and a breach is extreme. And if you have a breach within whatever areas or whatever categories, it's likely to cost you between 130 and 160 million. Then it's a very informed discussion. And that I think is one of the key aspects is driving a much greater focus on the whole control aspect. The second one, and you touched on this Reshmi, is around, let's call it real time. Rather than point in time is real time monitoring. And particularly in financial institutions, driven out of America first, being adopted here aggressively, is how do I move from point in time assessments to continuous and real time monitoring? And this is particularly in a three lines of defense model, particularly driven out of banks, but also in energy companies and others, is how do I automate the GRC components and actually have a much greater focus on real-time monitoring, real-time visibility, and real-time escalation of issues? If we were to respond to the changing threat landscape, real-time is what we have to do, not once-a-year assessment. It's out of date by the time we do it. And I think they're the two things, risk quantification and real-time controls to drivers in the market. One of the things I can think about is it helps the return on investment decisions much easier when you know what it's going to cost you and what's the returns, it makes the decisions a lot easier for everybody. I think it's a really good point around, it gives the ROI perspective, which is, let's be honest, in cyber we haven't been able to do previously. We've been able to, as an industry, sell fear, uncertainty and doubt as the driver for investment, but we couldn't support it with uh, ROI. And the other really interesting impact it gives is portfolio prioritization. We can actually say of the 30 projects that we're recommending an organization do, which ones have the most impact on reducing the risk position? What is the greatest risk buy-down for each of those investments? Let's prioritise them based on that. In the past, we couldn't do that empirically. We could do it based on the experience of other people doing it from a qualitative side. And let's talk a credibility view. What we're driving here is much greater credibility with the executives and boards where we can start to say, here is the expertise of the people doing the work. Here is the capability we need. And here is a quantitative model that actually supports our approach, it's yep. much more impactful and powerful at an organisational view and particularly at a regulatory view as well. Agreed. I know that we at Microsoft have a great deal of products when it comes to continuous monitoring. Andy, do you want to take that? Well, stepping back from the product side of things, just to say, look, from a, a Microsoft perspective, being Microsoft, we are a hyperscale cloud provider, multiple platforms. With that comes obviously significant amount of risk as well as the need to continuously attest to, to regulatory frameworks and comply to really just show to our customers that we are treating risk appropriately. To that end, we've built a whole lot of capabilities within our environment to automate those processes. 
For example, one of our capabilities is the Service Trust Portal, where some place that you can go to really just understand and attain a view of all the processes that we apply, the penetration testing reports, all the things that we do to attest that we should be trusted with our customers' services and data. On top of that, because we built it for ourselves initially, we've also just, and you'll see this really across Microsoft, where we've taken those tool and we're continuously making those available to customers to simplify their processes of validating that they can be confident in trusting Microsoft capabilities. I think it's a really good point you make. And I think Microsoft driving the best practice view is a really interesting perspective because the view I have, I know a lot of the people have this in the industry, is cyber is not a competitive advantage. It's a collective problem. The more we can work together, the more we cooperate, the more Microsoft shares learnings as one of the biggest investors in cyber and actually shares best practices, processes, pen tests, results, everything. It just helps to uplift the issue for everyone. And I think this ecosystem and collective is probably the position we need to drive much more in the market to actually recognize that we're all in it together as organizations, but recognize there is a collective response against organized crime. I know that we already touched upon supply chain risk becoming a focus these days, and there's been a lot of headlines lately on supply chain risk, especially the solar wings attack. And what we are seeing increasingly, especially in the financial services sector with APRA CPS 234, there's a greater focus on managing supply chain risk. So what, in your opinion, is the best way to monitor third-party risk on an ongoing basis, not just at the time when the contract is signed initially? You mentioned that companies are finding it hard even to have that inventory of who their third-party providers are. So what's the best way to continue and scale monitoring third-party risk? Yeah, I gave some context before, and I think it's very relevant that this is the hard one. This is a much more complex issue that as an industry and as organizations really struggle with. There's a number of optics here. I think the first one is there is an inventory view, and a lot of organizations understand their material suppliers. Very few understand the whole inventory list to say, who are all of our suppliers? And to be honest, for most organizations, the more they do, the problem still gets worse because the marketing area is going out and contracting another company, like just trying to keep a continuous monitoring view of changes to the problem, let alone a full inventory of the problem is really complex. The second, and this is a really hard part, is most have a view of tier one suppliers. their outsourcers, those that have data, payment processes, et cetera. If we look at the threat landscape and where the attacks have happened, it's not at the tier one suppliers. It's a tier two, tier three, tier four, and for some right down to end level supply, five, six, and seven in really complex supply chains. And this is really complex. And just to explore this a bit more. So I outsource to an organization and then they outsource part of it, particularly in product supply and product build areas. And I've done a lot in defense and other areas like that and complex supply chains in retail environments as well. And it's a tiered suppliers to suppliers and suppliers to suppliers to suppliers, et cetera, is unless I have an inventory view of that, then I'm not managing the risk. It's pretty simple in risk management is know your risk, triage, manage and govern. In supply chain, everyone's struggling with know your risk because they haven't got an inventory view. And probably too much focus has gone on. I think we know now our suppliers, but it's a tier one view. That's only part of the solution is how do we get a much greater focus? This is where a data view comes in. And I touched on before that doing a once a year bespoke, even on-site review is important. It's not the answer, let's be honest. It's just part of the answer. And so we touched on before around real-time and continuous. It's exactly what we have to do in risk management. It's exactly what we have to do in supply chain as well. There's some new capabilities out there and some companies that have really focused on a data view, a real-time data view and a real-time data interlock view of 
supply chain showing tier one, tier two, tier three, tier four, and how all of these supply chains interlock. And I'd encourage organisations that are worried and concerned about how to get proper visibility is to look at some of these capabilities out there in terms of really understanding a real-time data view. That data view will give you two things. It will give you insights I can almost guarantee you don't know today because if you don't know the inventory, you don't know a lot of the risks. And it's not just cyber risk. It will give you concentration risk. It will give you alternative sources of supply and other risk categories as well. So it gives a transparency view of risk. But then more importantly, what it allows the cyber functions to do is take the output of those risks, the severity and materiality, and start to map that into the risk management processes we touched on before. Once you've got the input, then you can manage triage and govern the risk and put in the appropriate technology and controls and oversight. But unless we do the first part of it, we're really not managing this as well as we should under CPS 234 or just under normal risk management processes. Yes, agreed. We at Microsoft have some capabilities in managing third-party risk, especially the Microsoft Cloud App Security, which gives a view on SaaS providers out there, and you can attest to that. Andy, do you want to take it away? Yeah, well, look, I guess from a third-party risk perspective, coming back to the previous commentary on what Microsoft is doing, because of who we are, a significant provider within a lot of supply chains, again, hence the necessity for us to really make sure that we've got strong processes internally. From a tooling perspective, increasingly we are providing capabilities that can assist in, in that space of assessment. Our compliance manager tooling, which is a framework that mapping to various controls, regulatory frameworks, where you can basically build out a lot of your GRC functions within that solution. We've expanded it out to not just Microsoft solutions, but also extended it out to third-party applications, as well as adding in reputation context around third-party SaaS applications, for example. There are a number of capabilities and it's continuing to grow. It is an area that we are really, really focused on investing in as well. So I'll frame it as that. Thanks, Andy. That brings me to my next question. Now that security is getting really embedded into the system development lifecycle itself with various stages of a security review. So Paul, from your experience, how should companies be tracking risk after the project go live? Usually that's the time when all the risk assessments happen and just forget about the risk after the project go live. I'd like to say that the DevSecOps process is so streamlined now that we've actually embedded all the right controls and we're not continuing to create problems. The reality is that a lot of organisations really haven't optimised the DevSecOps process. Part of the problem is we're focused so much today on triaging the problems of yesterday. Added to that complexity is we're still creating problems for tomorrow. And I think that there's two aspects that we need to do. The DevSecOps process needs to be much more embedded and probably enforced at a level of rigor that it's not today in organizations. The more we can do this, the more we can inject the right tooling into DevSecOps, we start to stop creating more problems. It's quite frustrating when you look at it and say, an organization spent in some of the big banks, hundreds of millions trying to fix yesterday and all the legacy problems. And then you give context to say, well, you've just created all these other problems in your digital environments because you haven't fixed it. So I think there's two aspects. One, let's focus on optimizing DevSecOps it will actually minimise the problems that we're creating going forward. The second one is let's take the outputs of the DevSecOps where we've seen capabilities launched into the market, embedded cyber and cyber by design, and feed it back through the DevSecOps lifecycle. I don't see that's really structured today in a lot of organisations. A lot of them have focus and some view of lifecycle around it, but I think we have a real focus here to take the learnings out of what we've launched in terms of new applications, new developments, and understand where we're not really optimizing it, feed that back and continually view this as a risk management life cycle. It's a training, it's an embedding, and it's a 
automation capability that we need to do much more. And the more we can drive automation into cyber, the more we're going to improve the problem statement. That's a very valid point there. So that brings us to the end of this questions, Paul. Very insightful. And I'm sure before we go, there are people watching who might be thinking, where do I get started? Or how can I improve things that I'm already doing today? What would be your top tips in terms of managing risk management capability in any organization? Really good way to sum up. And I think there's a couple of perspectives here. The first one is the metrics and reporting, basically how we report cyber is fundamental. If we're still reporting in legacy view of just technology vulnerabilities and we're putting that up to executives and boards and regulators and everything, we're probably not moving the needle in terms of an organizational view of what we need to do. Absolute focus on understand the risk, translate security vulnerabilities, the appropriate risk language, and absolutely look at two aspects. One is the risk reporting, how we're reporting the dialogue and narrative around cyber risk, but particularly in the context of risk appetite. And this is probably one area we haven't touched on, but boards and C-suites are very focused on determining appetite. So think of a bank looking at credit risk. They look at credit risk appetite. Are we inside or outside of appetite in terms of our credit lending portfolio or credit book? It's exactly the same in cyber. And I made the comment before that cyber is just another risk. We define a risk appetite. We report appropriately to the boards and C-suite around inside and outside of appetite. We're not talking about a lot of traffic light reporting, red, amber, green in terms of vulnerabilities. We're talking about risk language, inside or outside of risk appetite, support that with quantitative modelling. And it's amazing, I don't use that word lightly, it's amazing the impact it has at the board and executive because they buy into the topic and they really support two things. One is the investment support, but also we're driving a cyber culture view as well. I have a firm view that if we're to change cyber, we need to drive a culture view from top down. The only way we can do that is to appropriately engage the stakeholders. And that's really where I would start at the risk lens and the reporting lens into the executives and boards. Thanks, Paul. Some great insights there. It was a real pleasure having you here. You've been listening to Decoding Security, a show about how to protect your business from the ever-changing threat of cybercrime. This podcast is brought to you by Microsoft Australia. Microsoft Australia provides a comprehensive suite of end-to-end security solutions unified across people, devices, apps, and data. For more information, visit the website microsoft.com forward slash decoding security. This podcast was made with strategy and production support from Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Decoding Security, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Mark Anderson, and we'll be back next episode with more Decoding Security. Thank you.